Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. Three, two, one. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Today on our episode, we have with us Danielle Halsey. She is a uh, master's degree exercise physiologist who works at Riley Children's Hospital, specifically working with cancer patients. So we're happy to have you on today, Danielle. Thank you for joining us. Hi, guys. I'm happy to be here. I'm flattered to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So... Basically, I guess the first thing that would go a long way for everyone listening today is to just have you kind of talk to us about what you do and kind of a typical day for you and your job. Yeah. Um, so I'm Danielle or Danny. So you guys, if you want, you can just call me Danny this entire time because Danielle seems just so formal. Um, but I am a clinical research coordinator at Riley Children's Hospital. Um in Indianapolis, Indiana, in case you're not in this state. Um, And I have worked there for about a year and a half, and I work in the Department of Pediatrics, Hematology, and Oncology. Um, So I have a unique job in that I work... Uh, in the clinical research office, all of us in the clinical research office are split between different disease teams. And I am a rare breed of uh, clinical coordinator who works with any of our exercise studies, but I also work with our stem cell transplant studies. So I get to experience various, two very different worlds of studies for sure. Um, and essentially, if I don't know how much you guys have done with clinical research just yet, but um, I... I'm the like, I joke with my PIs um, all the time that I'm like the police. I try to make sure that everything (laughs) we say we're going to do with our studies, we're doing appropriately and things go to plan. Or if our physicians and our PIs want to do something, I kind of help foster that idea and see if they can do it and how we can make it happen. So basically Um, you're the reason that it actually passes through peer review successfully. Yes, sometimes, hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully. I'm kind of the person that has to be like the flagger at a construction zone that's like, stop, no, you can't do that yet. Like slow. (laughs) Okay, we're good. Um, So I have a very interesting job in the fact that I do get some patient interaction. Some coordinators do get a lot. Other coordinators don't get any. Um, I work with the survivor population on a majority of our studies. Um, And then my stem cell transplant studies are more data management, data entry studies where the exercise studies, I get to actually go and do assessments with patients or I train interns to train clients. I do train clients ever so often when I don't have any interns to train, but um, 
I don't get to do as much actual training anymore, which is kind of a bummer. I do like training this population quite a bit. So that's kind of what I do. The, the more exciting parts of what I do, I should say. I'm gonna, I was just going to ask you, how did you get into this aspect of like oncology? Because when people like, when you think of oncology, it's like a very unique population that either people are like, I really want to work with them and they've been dying to do it for a long time, or I don't know how else to get into it. So how'd you get to this point? Duh. So are you asking more, how did I get into exercise oncology or the actual yeah. position I have? So weirdly enough, um, I got into exercise oncology because the college I went to actually has a cancer rehab institute on it. So I went to the University of Northern Colorado, which if you're not from Colorado, um, it's one of the not big schools there. Um, and it is in Greeley, Colorado, which shout out to G-Town, but um it had a professor. So her name was Carol Snyder. Uh, she was a professor at UNC and she was diagnosed with cancer and being an exercise on like being an exercise professional. She was like, well, what do I do now? Like, do I keep exercising? What do I do? And her physicians told her like, no, you just need to rest, which was, that's the general, not anymore, but that was the general consensus of, you've been diagnosed with cancer. You need to lay in bed and do absolutely nothing and just let your body heal. And she was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, and so Carol, Dr. Schneider, it feels weird to call her, her Carol. I'm not going to call her that. Um, Dr. Schneider basically started the university of Northern Colorado cancer rehabilitation Institute. It's a big mouthful, um, in a small, like, probably closet as big as the room I'm sitting in right now and just saying like exercise has to be a way to help with this and benefit with this. So she started that and my campus has continued to have this um, facility. And I <laughs> weirdly enough was walking through a building on campus that had the like mock nursing um like patient beds. And I was like, I want to do something in healthcare. And I walked out of that building and I looked up and there was the cancer rehab center. And it was, I had already been in exercise science classes and I loved exercise. And so when I saw that I got to do something with a clinical population, but also utilizing my exercise degree, I was like, that's what I want to do. So I worked there for two years. So I don't know if there was anything specific that like plunged me into it. It sounds very like frou-frou, like woohoo, shining light thing, but it was more just like, I know I like working with clinical populations and with my current degree, this was where I could do it. And I conveniently was at a campus that offered working in oncology and exercise. Mm -hmm, for That's sure. Awful. Yeah. I always, I always find it funny when, um, whenever people think of doctors, like in the traditional sense, whenever there's anything wrong with the person, um, like for example, they get diagnosed with cancer, they get diagnosed with anything for some reason, whenever they get asked about exercise, it's like, no, 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 just don't exercise. Just lay off, just <laughs> yeah. chill, just relax. Once you get over this, then you can start exercising yeah, again. I feel like yes. that's just like the go-to. And that's one of the reasons that we have this podcast was because, um, although the evidence might not be there for maybe some of these things and they're still being researched, like for example, and cancer, it seems like it seems to be that exercise is always a good thing. Yes. And I 
guess that's what we're learning more and more these days. Yeah. If, yeah. if somebody could put exercise in a pill and give it to somebody, uh, that person would be very, very wealthy because the side effect, the side effects, the benefits of there's a little gnat. So I apologize. Um, the benefits of exercise are just unbelievable. And I think it's commonly overlooked how much it can help with so many things. Definitely. hundred percent. So one thing we always ask every guest on our podcast, so is, is a question, what does preventive medicine, what does preventive medicine mean to you? So basically what we're just trying to see is how many people have a different kind of perspective from preventive medicine. And obviously you working with cancer patients, you have a very unique perspective on you know, secondary prevention for them, or I guess primary prevention of things that we all worry about, but it's kind of overlooked in that population. So what does preventive medicine mean to you as someone who works with cancer patients? For me, it's, it's interesting because preventative medicine to me in the cancer population is definitely alleviating any of the side effects and the, that occur due to cancer treatment. And then the reoccurrence of cancer and making sure that I mean, this kind of ties in with the tox the toxicity and the side effects of cancer treatment, but like alleviating any of those symptoms that are going to occur throughout the person's lifetime. So if somebody's had like a doxorubicin treatment or has just had doxorubicin at any point in their life, that their risk of developing some sort of cardiovascular disease is higher. So we can help mitigate that by doing exercise. So to me, preventative medicine and this population specifically is to just help prevent those possible future diseases, side effects and lasting side effects for sure. Um, that's probably the best answer I can give you. In a side note, for those of you listening who may not be up to date on your uh, pharmacology, Dr. Rubinson <laughs> is, is a very common chemotherapeutic that can cause permanent damage to the heart when used. So it's a, it's kind of an accepted side effect of the drug. So that's what she's, she's referring to there with kind of preventing the long-term effects of a drug such as that. Yes. And I there's heard. that medical knowledge. We're uh, <laughs> medical students. We're just proving ourselves right here. That's what yes, this is. Yeah. I always, I forget that it's something that's so in my everyday life and the people that I talk to that I'm like, yes, this doxorubicin drug or other like or these platin drugs, things like that. If I bring them up, not everybody knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we also have talked about in other episodes, but also want to bring up and reiterate here is that prevention and preventive medicine doesn't necessarily mean like we're stopping it altogether from occurring. There's also secondary, tertiary, and even quaternary. How do you say quaternary? Quaternary? How do you say that? Quaternary? However you say that. Um, there's also quaternary? all those different kinds of prevention. So no matter what stage someone's at, you can always try to prevent like the next thing and try to risk reduce based on um, like improving their lives from that aspect yes. on. So that's kind of what you would look at in a population which is already um, affected by some sort of process that's going on. Yeah. And actually just to speak to that on your previous podcast where you guys talked about your origin and you talked about how you're going into your uh, specialty of like that re risk of 
an, a secondary stroke and trying to prevent that. Like I actually worked at a stroke certified hospital before. And like, that's, it's, I just want to always like shake people and like, I'm just trying, it doesn't matter where you are in your lifespan. Like I'm just trying to make sure you live the healthiest life possible. And it doesn't matter what happened before. We can always try and make it better. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a huge aspect when it comes to medicine in general is that when it comes to like any point in your life, you can always try to get better. You don't have to resign yourself to being to the point where like, Oh, we're going down the spiral. So might as well write it all the way to the bottom. You can always try to stop that spiral and start finding either way to plateau it. If you can do that, or maybe even start going up, which hopefully you can. So we've been talking about a little bit about cancer. And for those who are listening to this, um, we kind of want to give maybe a little bit more of an explanation for those that don't understand. I know cancer is a term that a lot of people kind of throw around and it's that big, like big scary thing. Yeah. Yeah, It's like just a big, scary thing that's hiding under the bed, hiding in the closet. So as like a basic definition for our listeners, what kind of is cancer? I accidentally muted myself there. Um, So... Cancer has actually quite a few like characteristics or and like hallmarks, but what we typically think of is a disease that is constantly growing. So it's really interesting the way that I've been taught over the years um, to like identify the hallmarks of cancer. One of them is to utilize it as a car or think of cancer cells as a car. So this, the cancer cells, cars, their brakes don't work. So they don't know when to stop growing. They just constantly keep growing. They avoid all barriers and road signs. So if it's supposed to stop again, it doesn't know when it's supposed to stop. It will break through any sort of barrier. So if it, if you're a pancreas cell and you touch a kidney cell, you're usually supposed to be like, Hey, stop growing. I'm not in the right place, but a cancer cell will touch another cell and be like, screw it. I'm going through and keep and growing. Yeah. (laughs) They're going full throttle. Um, Let's see. What else? Uh, I'm trying to think of all of the other little car analogies I have. Oh, it's engine never breaks. So it basically has a sense of immortality. Um, It will just continuously keep growing. Uh, It doesn't ever press the self-destruct button. And then the newer ones that are coming out is that it can like evade our immune system. And so I really like to think of the immune system as all of our cells have a little name tag and every name tag says, I belong to Danny. And so when a virus or something comes into our body that doesn't have the right name tag, we have little police that say, get on out. Well, cancer has a really good job of stealing a name tag and wearing it when it's not actually supposed to belong there. So it can hide and, um, kind of evade that immune system to augment that car analogy you can also kind of think of it as uh, evading the immune system by like having one of those police radio scanners so that you know whenever the police is around then they just like zip on by yes exactly and then i think i i somewhat captured them out to me a lot of the hallmarks kind of bleed over i guess you could say um because it's really the most basic definition of cancer is uncontrolled cell growth. There's a lot of things that go into cancer and the genetic mutations that cause cancer. And I love talking about that a lot because people just assume that you do one thing and it's going to cause you to have cancer. But, um, that's the biggest basic way you can put it is it's something that's uncontrolled in your body and it's not following what it's supposed to do. 
and it's very smart. Oh, that's what I was, that was, it's, it makes its own fuel. It's cancer is really smart. And so it will figure out how to survive despite the fuel soy source you give it, what you uh, try and it'll hide. It'll hide a lot. So one thing that I guess it, it sh- I would, I would assume is frustrating for you is kind of the, the general understanding of cancer. I think for most people is that there's just one can like there's just the cancer, right? Like <laughs> it's just cancer. What are, you know, in, in reality, there's all these genetic contributions, environmental exposures, like, you know, basically, you know, it's, it's so individualized to the exact type of cancer. And even within the exact type of cancers, there are, you know, generations and generations upon different you know, formulations, I guess I would, with, for lack of a better term of the same exact cancer. So I imagine that's pretty frustrating for you as well. When you see people saying like, you know, very generic terms about like, Oh, just avoid, avoid sugar and you won't get cancer or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, and so there are like, there's strong evidence, there's weak evidence, and then there's like preliminary evidence and you guys know all of this, but yes, it's extremely frustrating because a lot of things are in every field, but a lot of things are taken out of context quite frequently of like, okay, if you eat a cookie, you're going to have too much sugar and then you're going to get cancer. And I think it's very hard to, in the pediatric population that you'll see patients who like, we had a 24 24 hour year old born with a mass. And it's like one of these things where patients and parents are like, what did I do wrong? What like, and it's that it's that lack of education of that it's there are things you can do to prevent your risk of cancer but there isn't really any specific thing that you can say if you do all of these things right you are not going to get cancer and so i think that's that was one of the oh, interesting things because i actually worked with a population that was mostly like 40s to 60s when i was working at the university um, in Colorado. And now I'm in a pediatric population where we have kids who are just born with these masses. And it's not due to anything that they did because they're 24 hours old. They didn't have an opportunity to mess up it. So yes, it's very difficult to see that of like sugar. Sugar is going to cause your cancer. That's what, that is what's, uh, the biggest, the biggest frustration I currently deal with, I would say. Rocket, we're going to say something. I don't want to cut you off. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. So I think go, just go ahead. So in that vein of, of kind of understanding the nuance and, uh, I guess, multifactorial nature of kind of all things exercise and, you know, cancer and chemotherapy related, can you kind of speak, I know this is, this could be its own, this whole question could be a whole podcast or like lecture series on its own, but can you kind of speak to the relationship between exercise, cancer, and chemotherapy? I know it's a broad question. <laughs> that is really broad. But when you guys sent that to me, I was like, I'll try to keep it as simple as possible because, and this is one of the interesting things is I do feel that the exercise oncology field is a lot of, I don't want to say this because it sounds bad, but exercise is good. And the research just keeps saying exercise is good. So it's kind of funny because that's what that question really boils down to is that we're seeing that throughout the cancer continuum and throughout the cancer care continuum, I should say, that exercise implementation, physical activity implementation has its benefits, whether it's a strongly correlated 
like incident. Uh, that was bad wording, but you get it. Whether or not it's super, uh, super supported by evidence is a different story, but we're seeing that overall physical activity is going to have benefits no matter at what stage. Um, so they've even seen it from the standpoint of there's been more studies looking at mice models of, I believe it was pancreatic cancer, Ewing sarcoma, and possibly colorectal cancer. I can't remember the third one. But they have looked at the chemotherapy it delivery is better in those um, mouse models that the uh, when the mouse is exercising. So due to the fact that cancer is smart and will build its own blood vessels and also is smart in the fact that it will change its metabolic choice, fuel choice, that's the best way I'm going to word that right now, that with the exercise and the increased blood flow, you're able to allow for a lower dose of chemotherapy, which will help with the side effects and things like that, but also the delivery of chemo to the tumor cells itself. So that's like really cool. <laughs> and I actually want to read more of those studies, but I haven't yet. But that made that made me feel really excited about it. And then we'll see a lot of the big things where I was going to quiz you guys and ask you what you thought the biggest... Um, like what oh the biggest oh no. side effect from cancer was. I guess I will. You're, you're flipping the table. On I us. am. I'm going to say, uh, it's, it's effect on almost like detraining. So like people are less, Yeah, I'm gonna, I was going to say debility too. Yeah. Like less physiologic reserve for people. Yeah. So yep. that's, I mean, that's good. It's the biggest complaint or the most prolonged symptom that people with cancer have is cancer related fatigue. And so that ties into, it ties into debilitation and it ties into the fact that they eventually usually become sedentary because it's not only the treatment, the travel, the medical bills, the drugs themselves that they're getting, but it's the diagnosis and everything else. And it becomes this endless cycle of they're constantly fatigued, no matter how much they rest, how much they do yoga and they do all the things that help you relax. There's just this sense of fatigue. And then that sense of fatigue leads to being sedentary because they're tired all the time. And then that sedentariness leads to them being debilitated. And then it's just kind of this endless circle. And so throughout treatment, they're dealing with that fatigue. And then once treatment's over, and this is where I, I get frustrated and where exercise oncology is trying to come in a little bit more of like, you rung the bell, you finish your treatment, you're done. Congratulations. That's it. Like, ta-da. And there's a lot more that happens after that bell ringing that still needs to be dealt with. Um, and so that physical activity has actually been shown to help reduce that cancer-related fatigue at multiple stages, even if it is like a pre I know Jason loves his word prehab, um, <laughs> like, <laughs> but uh, like before surgery, things like that, like once people get that diagnosis, they can have that idea of fatigue of like, oh, I have cancer. This is, this is just draining, like what's going to come ahead. And so it's counterintuitive of a lot of things that we've ever been taught of 
if you're tired, relax. If you're tired, you need to, which is true. They need to think about it in the realm of what they actually are capable of doing, but just resting and doing absolutely nothing isn't going to help with that fatigue. So in the pre-treatment or before surgery and things like that, we're looking at helping with that fatigue, looking with looking at building that general fitness so that when they have that surgery, that we see better outcomes, less comorbidities after that surgery. Same thing with during treatment, where the fatigue is probably the greatest, I would assume. Um, And again, those side effects of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, like all the fun things that come with cancer treatment, that exercise can help with, it can help reduce those toxicities that we sometimes see and help with that fatigue. And then again, after treatment, after radiation, chemo, immunotherapy, hormonal therapy, we're having all of these side effects of increased risk of cardiovascular disease, increased risk of metabolic disease, um, Gosh, just increased risk of a sedentary lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And again, they're still dealing dealing with that fatigue. Yeah. And lo and behold, exercise helps with all of those things throughout <laughs> the um throughout the continuum. And actually, yeah. I'm I'm sorry, I keep talking a lot. But there was another whole study that I've was super excited to see that was looking at how exercise actually helped with the harvesting of cells for trans, uh, like for transplant patients. Huh. And so I was like, there's just so many fun things that exercise helps with. We just with. keep discovering, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know if you're aware, but we also have a lot of content going alongside each episode over on our Instagram page. So if you aren't already following us there, make sure to go do so at prevent pod. We have a lot of content relating to each episode, including waveforms, different quotes that you can share with your friends and help us spread the message of preventive medicine. And with that, let's get back to the show. Yeah, and I have, I'm going to flip the tables back. We're going to start asking you questions again. Oh, um, I know you're trying to ask us questions, but um, this one might be a little bit difficult and it's probably because there's, this is still an area of active research, but I don't particularly know this. So you'd probably have more experience with this. We've been touching a little bit on how like exercise has so many benefits in the, in the specific population with just like general debility as we were talking about. Um, but for someone who is undergoing this process, like there's just so much uh, to go about it. They're always fatigued, fatigued from every angle, not only fatigued from their disease process itself, but like you were talking about the hospital bills, the different, like the daunting aspect of potentially facing mortality um, and just everything. It's just very fatiguing. So at the end of the day, how is someone going to look at like exercise and be like, I have no energy right now. How am I ever going to be like getting up and like actually moving and exercising something? So the question here kind of is, is there a particular form of exercise that might be more or less beneficial for these patients? Like, should they be going for and doing a HIIT workout versus just like doing something like yoga? Or like everyone's, everyone's favorite advice from their doctor, just go for a walk. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and honestly, like, that's, that's right. It's true. Like, that's how I feel with most exercise. Like, I mean, you have, <clears throat> I'm trying to think of how I want to approach this equation, this problem. So I feel like we have a lot of barriers that people don't, that, that's a general barrier with anybody that they're like, well, how do you, I'm tired. I'm busy. I don't, we have a lot of excuses. You add cancer on top of that and there's even more. But so I think really the best way we can start to have people do stuff is the simplest, smallest things and work our way up. And with the cancer population, I truly do believe it is 
just finding that time to go for a walk or having healthcare providers and individuals who are motivating and helping them go there. So that's, that's one of the things that I, I personally, I dream of one day of when somebody is diagnosed with cardiovascular disease or has a heart attack or put, gets a stent put in, they almost always get a cardiac rehab consult. And I would love for cancer populations to also get that. They get PT referrals and things like that, but they don't have somebody who's following them throughout their treatment. And so I truly do believe it's simple enough of just like starting with a walk and realizing that that they're capable of doing that. And then, yeah, there has been studies looking at high intensity exercise in uh, breast cancer populations. There was actually a systematic review just recently released looking at, they looked at colorectal cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer mixed, and it was fairly um reasonable that individuals during treatment could still do that. And I think that's the thing is it really depends upon the person and it depends upon their treatment course and their blood, like their counts. There's so many things I will say with cancer population, like you're not just looking at like from a healthy population, we see coaches typically talk about like, how's your sleep schedule? How's your food? How's your stress levels outside of life with cancer populations? It's like, how's your white blood cell count? How's your like hematocrit? Like, are you on a, do you have a pick line? Do you have a port? Do you have a central line? Like there's a lot more to take in, but it's very much individualized to the patient. And so if you have a patient who is just like, how the heck do I even do that? You just start slow. If, even if it is just like, okay, we go up for a five minute walk, we go and then we go do a 10 and then like, let's do an hour yoga session kind of thing. So it kind of goes up to the patient's tolerance at that yeah. point. And then you can, um, although they might have decreased physiologic reserve, you can still kind of build that up. So maybe graduate from that five minute walk to the 10 minute walk to maybe even starting to do some sort of resistance exercise, yes, which I'm sure very much so. um, might be easier <laughs> and less daunting than something like doing a hit workout instead yeah. of let's do some squats. Cause all you have to do is sit down and get back up. Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, keep, keep going. You're good. Well, and you'll see patients that who were previously active before treatment, most of them will try and continue to exercise during treatment too. Mm -hmm. And so like there, um, I can't remember if this was at IU or not, but there have been patients who have like requested that they have the, actually on our floor, we have an assault bike or an old like aerodyne huh. bike. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> and it, it gets wheeled around and things like that. And, patients will go and bike on it and things like that. But I know that there was a patient, I believe it was IU and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, that they requested to have a bike brought to them and they were doing like biking. This would probably be Jason if he I'm sorry, this would be you. This person was getting their chemo done while while biking kind of thing. Wow. Hey, respect. Sometimes. Mad respect. 
Yeah. And, and I was also so, just going to add on there maybe for peace of mind as well. Sorry to cut you off. No, 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 you're fine. You were mentioning for peace of mind, like the continuing rehab. So I'm going into PM&R and one of yeah. the aspects that's like ballooning in that is cancer rehab. Yeah. So I'm sure that there'll be a lot of like continuum <laughs> going on with that. That's, and the field yes. of PM&R is also starting to embrace like a lot of exercise prescription, um, which I don't know if they have been as much before. So we'll definitely see a lot more of that. Yeah. And I mean, that was actually another paper that I had recently read too about like, so ACSM, American College of Sports Medicine actually has a, a branch, a, I don't know what you would call it, a service um, that is focused on exercises medicine and trying to implement the bridge the gap. Jason knows that this is one of my passions of bridging the gap between healthcare and the fitness world. Mm -hmm. And so essentially, yeah, let's do this. Um, It's essentially trying to give physicians a referral system to individuals who work with chronic populations and things like that. And it's always I can't, I can't rattle off the stats like I remember them, but it's always interesting to read those studies about bridging the gap between the two where like, it's this weird mix of physicians and healthcare providers don't either totally understand the benefits of exercise or they don't feel like they are, a, they have this the ability to refer to the right people so they don't know what to do or they don't know what's out there for them. And so that's what's so hard is there's a good chunk of physicians and providers that want to like refer out and want to. don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. And then it's not easy when (laughs) your average like time with a patient is maybe shorter and shorter every year, like maybe 10 (laughs) minutes at this point. And so like, how are you supposed to implement like, Hey, your blood looks good. I know that your left knee really hurts. You had a cough last June and I need you to start eating vegetables. And Hey, here's this random person that you should probably go see at this gym. Okay. Bye. Like it's very difficult. Hundred percent. So I I feel like one of the things too that may be a, a deterrent is you know like regular trainers. I guess I'd say that's a really poor choice of words. I guess people <laughs> who train healthy individuals right may feel scared to take on a population that is kind of viewed as fragile, right? Like, like, wow, what if I, you know, I'm just a person who works at, you know, CrossFit, wherever and this person who's on, you know, chemotherapy comes in. What happens if I put her through this workout and something bad happens, you know? So I definitely feel like there's probably some reluctance or maybe not even reluctance, just unknown of like, what's going to happen if I have this person do a heavy five by five squat, like, you know, if they're on, you know, some sort of chemotherapy that affects like bone density or muscle tendon strength or, or something. And I don't know what that is. Like that would definitely affect my ability to be like, okay, here's a, for what a general population would be a good exercise prescription. Let me just give you that. Yeah. I would feel a lot less confident in, in doing so. Yeah. And honestly, those exercise prescriptions don't look too different. It's just understanding what this individual has gone through. So like as part of my study, my study, it's not my study, the study that I help oversee, um, we screen everybody's medical records. We look at their treatment. We look at their side effects. We try to understand it. And so like radiation, immunotherapy, hormonal therapy, things like that. 
chemotherapy, various things are going to affect bone density, like you said. So I'm just going to go off of that. And it's understanding like, okay, then this person needs weight bearing exercises. They need to do that, but they need to do it progressively. And so I think trainers in general just need to think about it. I think we freak out because we see cancer, right? We see cancer and we go, holy crap, this person is broken and they aren't broken. They're a human. They're fine. And they don't typically want to be treated like cancer patients don't want to be treated like a fragile bird. They have everybody doting on them all the time and like telling them about themselves a hundred percent of the time. Like your blood looks like this, you're getting this chemo, you're going to feel this, you're going to experience this. And so I think when they come into the gym for the most point, most time, most of the time, they want to just feel like a normal person. They want to not think about their cancer and things like that. They'll, they'll take it into consideration as a trainer should do, but you basically, as a trainer, you need to look one, you need to have a good screening to know that you understand what this person has gone through. And so if a person comes in off the street that you don't have time to fully assess, treat them like a person you've never seen before. You probably wouldn't load somebody to like RPE nine, 10 and at a five by five, if you've never met them before, you would probably progress them at a lower rate dependent upon, <laughs> I see your little smirk over there. I was going to say, no, they, go, they go straight to 10 by 10 German volume training. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but you know, you would, you would be cautious whether or not you would, usually most trainers, at least I am, I'm, I'm cautious until I actually get to know the person or I'm, I'm smart. You just need to be smart about what you decide to do. So Going in, talking to this individual, saying like, well, what what are you experiencing? And going based off of just general trying to think about cancer knowledge of like if somebody has had had certain treatments, what exercises are going to benefit them? And it's not it's not like this individual can't do a five by five. Their five by five might be a lot lighter than their five by five when they weren't in treatment. Or the the thing about chemo is chemo is cyclic, just like periodization, which there's been studies about matching training to their chemo and doing cyclic um, periodization training along with their chemo, which was really cool. But same thing of those trainers off the street. If you see somebody who comes in and is like, hey, I had treatment. One, if they're like 10 years off, their side effects are going to be probably a lot less dependent upon their chemotype because, or their treatment type, because I've had some patients who are 10 years off that still have a lot of residual, but then I have people who are 10 years off that are like, you are a quote unquote normal person kind of thing. I don't know if that helped answer the question. Yeah. So it it definitely helped. And you talked about it, like a lot of the nuance and goes into like a lot of the detail. (laughs) I think, I think for, uh, if we want to summarize that essentially, it's like you have to take the person into account of what they're going through at that time and kind of prescribe something appropriate to them. Like it's all circumstantial at the end of the day, it's circumstantial for everyone. And for most people, um, most people don't have cancer, but for the ones that do, you just have to add that as another circumstance and kind of adjust for that mm-hmm. and be cognizant of that. And otherwise, otherwise it kind of acts pretty normal. Yeah. Well, and that's <laughs> the thing is ACSM or, uh, like you've, people have probably trained cancer patients or cancer survivors without knowing, and it. Not knowing it. Yep. 
because yeah. oh go ahead no Sorry, you're fine but like if somebody was diagnosed when they're 10 they or or younger and you, they come to you when they're 25 26 30 40 50 they're still a cancer survivor their treat their they might still have some sort of treatment but to them at if they were diagnosed when they're 10 and now they're 30 to them, their peripheral neuropathy, I can't talk to them now at 30. It's just like, yeah, I don't have great grip strength or great feeling in this hand. It's no longer like I have cancer induced peripheral neuropathy. It's now, I just, I don't grip very well in this hand. And then you probably start working on grip strength or different tactile cues so that they feel things a little bit different or better. Yeah. And you know, one thing that I like that you said, um, without, if I get too philosophical, Rog is going to yell at me, but just the idea that, you know, the folks that, you know, have to carry this diagnosis. I mean, there's no way that it, you know, it doesn't get ingrained into a part of their, uh, their identity, self-identity. But at the same time, like you said, just like the rest of us want to go to the gym and forget about all of our other life stuff. They probably do too. You know? So it's the same time. It's like, you know, taking into account maybe some of their limitations without reminding them of their limitations at the same yes. time. Saying, oh, you know, maybe adjusting for their load without adding in the narrative of, oh, I'm adjusting this load because you have cancer or something like just, you yeah. know, just adjust the load and say, Hey, we're going to work on getting stronger. You yes, know? exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a hundred percent programming, at least for individuals who are fresh out of treatment, it's 100% understanding what they've gone through, looking at what they've experienced, looking at the side effects that they may be experiencing and going, okay, I know this person probably had their bone density affected. We need to do weight bearing. Okay. I know that this person had radiation on their chest. Their cardiovascular system might not be as great or their cardiorespiratory fitness isn't as great. They might also have skin irritation. So putting them in a chest, like having them do a chest supported row is probably going to be painful and annoying. And it's just thinking it's it's doing what a good tra trainer should do. It's thinking about what a client needs individualized mm -hmm. and matching what works. So like if you have somebody who's had a shoulder surgery, whether it was cancer related or not, and their range of motion is only to like 90 degrees, you're not going to be like overhead press 300 pounds. Let's go. Like they can't do that. So it's taking into consideration like, okay, they don't have great range of motion. What can we do to work in their range of motion or slowly increase their range of motion? So I think Got we it. as trainers have a tendency I think trainers have a tendency to overthink it because they see the C word, they see cancer yep. and they're like, I can't do it. And I'm like, you can, you definitely a hundred percent can. You just have to be smart about it. It's not a gen pop person. So you can't just assume like, Oh, they're great. They're fine. And some of them, they are, they are great. They're fine. They just can't lay down on their chest because they have a, a port or their skin is irritated there. Yeah. And so, so not to, not to change things too drastically, but we are the, we are the preventive medicine podcast. I would be remiss if I didn't ask, <laughs> is there some way that exercise or are there are certain cancers perhaps that are, that exercising may reduce the risk of uh, exposure to her, or, or I guess reduce the risk of, of obtaining. 
Yes, there are seven cancers that have actually been, have strong evidence. So I believe, uh, hopefully I'll remember them all or take away my certification. All right, so now we're quizzing you. Yeah. Yeah, we're quizzing you now. There's a uh, kidney, ovarian, prostate, breast. Well, I'm at like five. We're at five. Uh, bladder and I don't think there's strong evidence for lung. Now I want to cheat. A bit. I, I, I think it might be long, but there's a really nice infographic on ACSM. Um, <laughs> but yes, there's, I mean, there is strong you evidence. Failed the test. I did fail the test. <laughs> oh, wait, Let's six see. for seven is still passing. Six for seven yeah, is still passing. Okay. That's true, that's true. I looked at, I looked it up. It's breast cancer, endometrial cancer. Kidney cancer, bladder cancer, esophageal cancer, stomach cancer, and colon cancer. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. So those have all shown, like, have been shown that exercise helps decrease your risk of that or lowers your risk. Got it. And then I think we also touched on this earlier on in the podcast um, that Jason was joking that there's some people out there who say don't eat sugar at all. Um, because it will increase your risk for cancer, whether it's through the inflammation, quote unquote, that's almost like a very highlighted term or whatever, whatever else it, it they feeds, say out there. Sugar feeds the cancer. That's my sugar yeah, exactly. Feeds the cancer. Yeah. Yes. So I know, I know you're not necessarily like a nutritional expert on like how that in, uh, goes into cancer, but is there any validity to that statement or any other no. silly nutritional ideas that you've heard? No. no, the only, so the only evidence that actually has a strong correlation when it comes to nutrition and cancer is like red meat. Red meat is one of the only ones that has shown a strong, a strong correlation of those that have increased red meat diets or higher red meat diets have a higher risk of developing cancer. It doesn't mean if you eat red meat, but the whole sugar feeds cancer. Uh, the whole sugar <laughs> feeds cancer thing. I think that is, summarizes it. You can yeah, probably stop the answer yeah, right yeah. there. Oh, That's just going to be the um, sound bite for that. that question. Yeah, right there. Uh, <laughs> it, um, I think it mostly comes from the fact that cancer is very good at changing its metabolism so that when it's in a hypoxic state and it doesn't need oxygen, it will switch, switch to glycolysis. And then glycolysis is the breakdown of sugar and using sugar to produce ATP. So in the giant jump of science to public we've now had if you eat sugar the cancer is going to eat it it's going to get worse bam like i don't know how that jump happened because science. it doesn't really matter our cancer like i said earlier is smart so if we all of a sudden get on a keto diet our body's gonna be like hey guess what I like fat too. And then you switch and you take out both and you're going to starve your cancer. And then your body's like, the cancer is like, then I'm going to take everything else you just have. And like, that was, Oh, there was this guy on Instagram selling juices, juices that would oh, scare man. your cancer. And I literally wanted oh, to like man. punch him through the phone. The, the sad <laughs> thing about that. I just want to jump in here real quick. Is that if you're listening to this, there are people out there who say like juices will cure cancer. Like I have a special diet for you. That's going to cure cancer. But um, we've touched on, touched on this like idea in other podcasts as well, but those ideas can actually be pretty harmful because then you have someone with an actual diagnosis of cancer, which could easily be treated by like medical professionals who are trained in cancer treatment and like the whole entire realm of cancer where something could be easily treated, but instead they make it worse. Yeah. And that was like the example of like 
like um, Steve Jobs, who tried to cure his cancer using like fruit and whatnot, and most likely could have been like at least treated properly. And who knows what the outcome would be, but probably better than the fruits. Yeah. So for those of you listening out there, it has an effect. Please don't like yeah. give those people any validity or anything, but yeah. that's not the way to go. And that's why I, I am not hesitant to talk about nutrition when it comes to cancer, but I don't have a huge background in it. I'm not a can yeah. like I'm not a nutrition cancer person. Um, like I know that there is strong evidence of certain like the red meat thing, but I don't know like, oh, yes, if the you intricacies eat, of it. Yes, yep. I don't know. And like I know that protein during treatment is important because we want to try and maintain that lean muscle mass. It's the same as when somebody's in a extreme caloric deficit. Like we want to increase that protein to hold on to that muscle mass kind of thing. And so like, yes, it's, thank you for saying that because that is the hardest <laughs> thing is you see a lot of people, a lot of people get hurt or they can be too far gone yep. by the time they reach. Yep. And so this would probably be a yeah. good time to plug. If you have questions about your own diagnoses or cancer, that's a great thing to talk to your physician about. So again, yes. this is not medical advice. This yeah. Don't DM us yeah. questions about that <laughs> yeah, at all. Don't. Send that to a doctor, please. This please is don't. educational and entertainment only. We are not yeah. your physicians. You want me to tell you how to do a goblet squat? I'm your girl. You want me to tell you what to eat during your cancer treatment? I'll refer you to some people and yeah, exactly. talk to your physician. Wait, you mean yeah. you think it's important to stay in your lane? That's Oh what? yeah, what? I do. I do. No way. My lane is, I like it here. I wish, I wish we all felt that way. Yeah. I'm not turning my blinker on anytime soon, at least. (laughs) All right. So before we kind of move on, just so everyone else knows, Danielle also works with healthy people. She works with a lot of healthy people as as a coach as well. So what's one thing just in general that you wish everybody knew about exercise? It's not as hard as you make it out to be. I actually, when you sent that question, I like, I I was like, what am I going to say? And that's the first thing that came to my mind is I think we... We as a society have made exercise something that's like sits on this pedestal. And it's really hard because like I'm a, I've done triathlons. I do powerlifting. I'm a freaking site. I'm not, I'm not you run a hundred K psycho. Ultra marathons, yeah. Yeah, I'm not. She's like, she was about to say psycho. And then she's like, Jason. <laughs> well, I what I mean is like I I'm in my friends and my friend group, I'm very much like the exercise lady. Like we literally have a physician or an NP at work who's like, "Oh, you're the exercise lady." And I'm like, "Yeah, I I love running, I love lifting, I love hit train, like I love doing hard stuff." But that doesn't have to be everybody's like baseline yeah. for exercise. It doesn't like exercise and this is another weird pet of soapbox I like to step on, like exercise and physical activity are two different things, but I'm not going to talk about that right now. But <laughs> like exercise itself is not as difficult as we make it to be. It doesn't need to be you're in the gym five days a week and you have a 10 pack or, you know, you have legs as big as tree trunks. I, I don't. Yeah, that would be nice though. But like you don't, it doesn't have to be that. So I think it's finding the exercise that's right for you. And that's going to help you live the lifestyle, the healthy lifestyle that you want. And also it's so nuanced, but exercise, simply exercise is not as hard as it as you've all made it believe. 
to be. Yeah, where and I think that problem's <laughs> exacerbated by like when you scroll through Instagram and whatnot, you see just only people that are either doing the extremes or that are like completely not exercising at all. Like you yes. don't see when you look at Instagram celebrities, they're either super fit and that's is what they do, like that is their realm, or they're like a normal person and you think they don't exercise at all. When in reality, that other normal person on in Instagram probably also exercise. It just doesn't mean that there's only one thing. Yeah. yeah. And that ends up being a huge barrier to exercise, which is really unfortunate. It's yeah. it's so frustrating. Yeah. And among that barrier, there's a bunch of other barriers as well. Um, number one, probably being that it's not as hard as it seems just to get involved. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. just real quick to plug another episode. We did an episode <laughs> with uh, Eddie Cohn. And if you guys haven't listened to that one yet, then he talks a lot about like um, kind of the appropriate way to just get started and like a little bit of a progression there. So go check that episode out. But now a question for you, Danny, is... Um, I know that's a difficult question, but in your mind, what is one of the ways we eliminate that barrier to exercise? Oh, man. So with COVID, I've actually learned about more of these barriers, interestingly enough, because when you're trying to run a human subjects research study in the middle of a uh, virtual life pandemic, as you guys get to experience with your podcast, it's really hard. You come up, you find a lot of barriers. Oh, yeah. Um, and so... I, you're going to have to repeat the question because I just thought of all the things. How do we eliminate <laughs> barriers to exercise? Uh-huh. Oh, the much, the much less winded. Yes. How do we eliminate barriers to exercise? Um, that's that's hard. I Ideally, if you had asked me before COVID, it would be like, well, we make it easily accessible via virtual or we make it cheaper or we and the hard part about like if we make it cheaper by making it online, then you have the issue of dealing with not everybody has access to online um and some, not everybody has a computer, not everybody has internet. But I think the biggest thing from a community standpoint is one, education. So if people are more educated about it, they're less likely to be scared to do it and educated that it doesn't have to be in a gym. It doesn't have to be in a with a trainer. It doesn't have to be with weights and then helping communities establish safe places to exercise. So like in Indianapolis, where I live, they actually just extended one of the trails and now it's really nice because I have more areas to walk or run or bike and things like that. And it makes that barrier of me going outside and doing something a lot smaller. It's no longer like, well, I don't have any place to go because there's some big street right by my house. It's now I have a trail that I can walk on. And so I think of that from more of because I am so lucky to have the funds to have two gym memberships and have weights and things at home, I the um, barriers I immediately think of are those um, that don't include money and things like that because I I don't know how we could fix that barrier of like everybody gets a free gym membership because that's just sadly not a realistic barrier I think we will ever be able to get rid yeah. of right now hopefully yeah. maybe one day but yeah i 100 percent agree yeah but you know i definitely think that you know one of the one of those things that you know we need to take into account is socioeconomic factors you know cultural factors you know where geographic factors if someone lives yeah. on a farm how do they you know get to a gym slash you know do they have time to do that in their daily life to to go ahead and like try to drive 30 or 40 minutes to a gym when they yeah. might work 10 or 11 hours a day or something like that and i think that's where the education standpoint of 
teaching them that exercise doesn't have to be in those traditional places and that it can be just, you know, body weight stuff in your house. It can be different modifications and allowing that education to, because when people are more educated, they feel more confident when they're more confident, they're more likely to do it. And so if we can educate people from a younger age that, like these are the benefits of exercise. These are ways you can exercise at home without like, without feeling like you can't like without feeling like you have to go to a gym or you have to have weights or you have to do X, Y, Z because putting these like black and white, black and whites on things, then we end up like being like, well, I'm in a gray zone. I don't know where, if I'm not in pod A and I'm not in pod B, how do I do this? So if we give people that confidence and education, they're more likely to succeed. Definitely. I think, uh, the answer to breaking barriers is always going to be education to one extent or another. Yeah. Um, and where the education comes from is very dependent, whether it ends up being like a systemic type of education thing, like the government says, okay, we need to have everyone exercising because we'll be a happier country. We'll be happier. We'll be fitter. Everything will just be better. Or it comes from physicians and like the healthcare system in general that wants to improve their population's health or, um, people like you on social media, um, <laughs> advocating for exercise and talking about all of these different topics that we're discussing this podcast. So um, education, 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 that's what we're here for as well. Yeah. So our last, our, our last question of the day. So quiz time, quiz time is over after our last question here. So you have one of our, one of our favorite questions to ask people because we get such different answers and such great answers. It's just an awesome question is, so you're in a coffee shop, you're at Starbucks or wherever you like to go for coffee and someone notices you from Instagram. They're like, Oh my goodness. That's Danielle. Happy, healthy, healthy. On happy, healthy, Halsey. Yeah. And, they, and they run up to you and they're like, Hey, how do I, I don't know what to do. How do I get healthy? I don't know what, just, just tell me how to do it. You have two minutes before their coffee gets here. What do they do? Oh, I would probably end up blowing through that two minutes so quickly. Um, cause that, well, in case I'm going to start, I'm going to start a timer right yeah, now. A metaphorical say, timer right here. Yeah. So picked up. I'm a little long winded. Um, <laughs> I would probably just say add whole foods, move your body. And like adding whole foods is a pretty not great thing to say because not everybody has access to whole foods, but I would just moving, moving your body is probably the biggest thing I typically talk about with people that want to get healthy is looking at what you are doing right now and what can you add in to make your life better instead of subtracting it because we always subtract things. And when we subtract things, we either go from one extreme of we now hate everything that we've added to our lives and we miss everything we've subtracted. And so I typically just say, just move your body and find the thing that works for you. And that is what will make you your healthiest because if you find the exercise modality that it, you find enjoyable and makes you feel happy, you're going to be healthier overall, mentally, physically, etc. Definitely. All right. It might've been just over two minutes, but I think you passed that last test. I think I was more trying to explain to you all what I was trying to say, but chances are I would be like, one, I'm very impressed. You know me from Instagram. I hope I haven't weirded you out yet. Two, 
you just need to move your body and try and eat more vegetables and lean food. Like it's a very generic statement, but yeah. if I have two minutes, that's, that's what you get. For Got the it. And then, and then speaking of Instagram, where can people find you? Do you want to like spell out your Instagram? So if someone's oh, like driving or whatever, they can, so it's happy, and I was kind of long, healthy, and then Halsey, H A L S E Y, like the singer with and then, the underscore. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. And then if you guys are listening to this or whatever, everything, wherever you can find it will be in the show notes down below. And if you follow us on Instagram, which you should be, then we'll have her all over there as well. So <laughs> you just click on one of those tags and find her. She's doing great stuff on her Instagram. Is there anything else guys. that you want to plug? No, I don't really have any. If you want to twin with me and Jason, we rock some really cool bagel shirts ever so often because I'm all about making sure you still eat carbohydrates because that was another big thing. <laughs> eat but, the damn bagel. And you, and you won't increase bagel. your risk for cancer either. Yeah, and you won't. It won't feed your cancer. It won't increase your risk for cancer. It'll feed your quads though. <laughs> Yeah. <sighs> All right. So we want to thank you uh, for coming on to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Thank um, you so much, Really guys. appreciate your time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for hanging out with us. Hopefully we didn't bore you too much. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.